0: Let's try this again. So we're in church history, and we're going to continue on looking at looking at the Age of Revolution. I got an hefty little word here. I don't get to use this as often as I want. Conflagrations. Yay, conflagration! Nikki loves her word. It is. It's a great word. It's basically, it's not like the that's right. It's not as fun though. No, it's not. It just means leaving a window. But there, But um, conflagrations is, is about you know. Flames, but it's also talking about things just kind of exploding into interesting stuff. So the world is a flame with change. Franco Prussian war. Cool uniforms. This is the era of cool uniforms. And part of the part of it is interesting to, to say, well, why do we why are we even talking about it? But you'll notice that patchwork quilt of Germanic states is now one big Germany. Because they all united against Austria. It's like mutual enemy, let's take out Austria. But, even though they are enemies to one another, now there's two large German-speaking kingdoms in, in, in Europe. And that freaks out France. Because up to this point, France is like, oh, our biggest problem is Austria. There's a bunch of Protestant German states, but as long as there's a bunch of Protestant German states, everything's fine. Now there's one large Protestant German state. Then the Prussian, and Protestant. Prince Leopold is suggested to be the next in line for the throne of Catholic Spain. Just the way all the intermarrying and weirdness and, and families work. So if you're France, Catholic France, sitting next to Catholic Spain, how would you feel? Happy. No, you wouldn't feel it. French Emperor Napoleon III, because the Napoleons keep trying really hard to have an empire. French Emperor Napoleon III gets terrified because he's like, I would be bracketed by German Protestants. It would be German, German, for all intents and purposes, German. Not a good place to be if you're France. Especially since he's married to a Spanish born Catholic wife who really didn't like the idea of a German Protestant sitting on the throne of the country she was born in. So, Napoleon III blocks the nomination, Leopold is out. Catastrophe averted. Okay, what would you think happens then? Absolutely. But also German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. Have you ever heard the name Bismarck? Yes, like South Dakota. No. And so Bismarck <laughs> spun that as attack against Germany. Clearly, clearly this is another sign of French aggression, trying to fight the legitimate heir of Spain. Plus there was this whole question about how did they mistreat the ambassadors or what all do they do? So he makes a big to-do about it. So all of Germany comes together to invade France in reaction to this horrible slap. Remember how we've been talking about the, the dangers of building politics based on, no, you did. You know, well, that's that. You know, that's this is... <laughs> big reaction to this. They even laid siege to Paris itself. By the way, at this time, France is still more about croissants, and Prussia is more about marching and pointy things. So, yeah, they're basically going to just, just wade right through, right through France. Not even... A lot of times, the French totally unprepared. They're like, "No, we we got to stop." In the end, they had to sue for peace. What's interesting, they ended up having to pay what what now would have been a roughly 500 billion dollars to the Germans, because the Germans are like, "We can either take France and color it black on the map and say France is now just part of the larger German Republic, or you pay us 500 billion dollars." By the way, we're going to sit in France until you pay us 500 billion dollars. There's a new democratic republic in-ish, democratic-ish, republic in, in France because they ousted Napoleon III. In fact, he got captured by the Prussians and he surrendered. And everybody in France went, "You surrendered? I had 60,000 troops. They're all going to get slaughtered." Yes, I surrendered. So, does that make him a hero? He always wrote that he was a hero. He's like. I fell on my sword, metaphorically speaking, so that we didn't all fall on our swords. Or was he a coward, like his wife said? His wife actually said, You're a you should have killed yourself. You should have all died. If you were a decent Frenchman, you should have all died to the last man. Yeah, That's, by the way, who you want running your country. That kind of leadership that goes, well, why didn't you all just die? Dear. So, anyway. So they got rid of Napoleon III, uh, the Prussians were holding on to them, and they created this this Democrat-ish state. And the Germans marched through the streets of Paris, mar- made a big deal, uh, deal about marching under the Arc de Triomphe. That is a little awkward if you're France, isn't it? You could see Germans marching through the big arch, reminding you that you guys once controlled stuff in Europe. Oh yeah, Napoleon was awesome. Now we're speaking German as we march under the, the arch. And France pretty much decided to hate Germany forever after that. Seriously! They even have a name for it. They called it revengeism. There's a whole thing in France about how much they hate Germany. So in this picture, Germany, the Prussian woman is marching away saying au revoir, and the French woman over here is like, oh, we'll meet again. That's. It, they spent like the next 150 years going, oh yeah, oh, it's on. It's totally on. So by the time you get to World War One and, and, and they're like, you know, people are starting to gang up on each other and, and take sides, France was giddy to go, oh, we're against Germany. I don't care what else happens, we're against Germany. And then Germany, like, plays waste to France with trench warfare and things like that. So it was the French who said at the end of World War One, how do we punish Germany? How do we make it so that Germany gets Hummel, can we please put a clause in the, in the peace treaty that says the German people have to sign and say that the German people are essentially flawed morally. There's never been a peace treaty where anybody had to do that, except after World War I. They're like, Treaty of Versailles, can we please have them write, we're bad people. Which, of course, means that after 20 years of that, after your economy has been destroyed, you're told that you can't have an army, you have to tell the entire world community that you're bad people, you finally get a leader that comes along and goes, we're not bad people. In fact, it's good to be German. You know, Germans have done wonderful things. It's all the other people that are the problem. We're actually a good group of people. We're, we're famous for having a military. I don't care what everybody else says. We should have a military. Let me fix the economy. Would you like a guy like that if you were Germany? Which is why Hitler came to power. So arguably Hitler came to power because of the Franco Prussian War. How important is the Franco Prussian War? See where I'm going with this. It was also because he didn't make it as an artist. There is that. <laughs> Nobody would let him be go higher than Lance Corporal in the army because they thought, don't give this guy power. Yeah. Anyway, in 1871, as part of the Franco Prussian War, Pumal was saved by yeah, and I looked it up. I don't understand French. Pomont was saved by a miracle. Prussian army is advancing toward the city of Laval. And they had to pass to this small town of Pomont to do it. Alright? But, right before the army could invade, a young boy looked up in the sky and saw a vision of Mary appearing in the night sky. Which they saw, thought was cool. Now his parents couldn't see it. None of the adults could see it. Their school teacher couldn't see it. But his little brother swore that he could see it too. He said, can you see it? He said, oh, I totally see it. Um, and then they asked a couple of other little girls in town if they could see her and they said sure, yes we can see her too, so your guess is as good as mine, was there a vision of Mary or was it something that little kids mass hysteria, I don't know, point is is, they talked about a vision of Mary up in the sky and then a banner unfurled beneath her in the sky with the message pray my children, God will hear you in time, my son allows himself to be touched technically if I understand it correctly in French it's a it's not like in general you can always come to Jesus. It's at this moment he is allowing himself to be touched by you. So now's the moment to pray. So now's the moment to pray. People of Pomont prayed. Oppression Prussian advance halted. Nobody knows exactly why. Different reports vary. Nobody knows exactly why they halted. But the com- some reports later on suggest that at least the commander heard about the apparition and didn't want to chance it. He was just like, I heard that the Madonna appeared in the sky, and maybe this isn't the town we should attack. Now, is that true? I don't know. Those are later reports, most of which were from France. So it's like, hard to know if that's really what happened. Hard to know. But we do know that kids did say that they saw a vision of Mary, people did pray, and the Prussians did stop. And so it's considered this huge miracle. In commemoration, a church was erected on the site called Our Lady of Hope of Pomont. Nifty, nifty, uh, <clears throat> uh, stained glass, all remembering this, this event, this moment. In fact, in 1905, Pope Pius X declared the spot a basilica. And if you don't know what a basilica is in this context, a basilica is a place of Catholic pilgrimage. I'm thinking it's a basilica if you are supposed to go to it and receive a special blessing because you made a pilgrimage there. Kind of like what the Muslims feel about Mecca or something. Does that still exist? This? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, in fact, uh, nearly 200,000 people a year come to this little place. They had like 600 people in it back in 1871. But 200,000 people go through there every year. It is a bustling place now. In fact... There's even a chapel dedicated to Our Lady of Pomal at the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. So, in this large um, Catholic church building, for lack of a better term, there's a specific spot designed just for that miracle and just for that place. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to who actually put up the money for that? It was a private donation. What? No, no, an individual. Bob Hope, devout Catholic. So, Bob Hope and his wife uh, in 1994 put up the money for that. Go figure. Yeah, so, on, Bob Hope. Anyway, 1871. Hmm? Yeah. Actually, and then the, and he, and he, I was wondering if anybody was going to get that. Uh, his. He did it in honor of his mom, whom he always considered Our Lady of Hope. He's a Catholic, and so is a thing, and so is... And being Bob Hope, he did, like, layers of funny with it. So, anyway, okay. Thank you for catching me. One. So, 1871. Stanley found Livingston. Remember where we talked about this a while back? So, I will not talk too long about this, but, just to remind us, David Livingston, missionary in South Africa, whose greatest success is arguably in getting people to care about missions in South Africa. I mean, it's like... He, he helped a lot of the tribes, but he also had most of the tribes turn against him by the time he was done. So the biggest thing is he wrote he wrote a bestseller. Everybody back home was like, ooh, Africa, interesting. Um, that and the fact that by default he ended up becoming one of the greatest explorers in England at that era by doing things like finding Victoria Falls. Because everybody was just hanging around on the edges of Africa. They considered it the dark continent. It's spooky, scary. And he's like, you know, there's a lot of people that live there. It's not just some dark place filled with animals. You know, there's people there. And so we went through the interior and went from one coast to the other. Nobody would really done that unless they were just looking for slaves to get. So for the most part, he he was one of the first Englishmen to or, 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 or Europeans at all to walk through Africa to see the inner part of it. And so he became this great explorer, even though all he was really trying to do is share the gospel with people other than just along the coastlines. But, like I said, he's not a very good administrator. He tended to offend everybody, including not only his backers back home and his fellow missionaries, but also the tribes he was working with. Some of them loved him. He's great, and others of them couldn't stand him. And so by the end, he was kind of just left alone. In fact, if you remember correctly, the people who saved his life were caravans of slavers, uh, because nobody else would take care of them. And they went, oh, you're a white man, we'll help you. Thank you for your racism, but uh, kept him alive. But for about five or six years, nobody had heard from him. It's not like he was lost. He just kind of faded into obscurity. So as a publicity stunt, the New York Herald sent out Henry Morton Stanley to find Livingston. He's He's not actually lost. We have to find him. He's a national treasure for somebody else's country. But he's not. Not Paul McCartney is dead. Paul McCartney. Nobody has seen him. <laughs> Listen to that record backwards. <laughs> Don't you see? So, big publicity <laughs> stuff. Big publicity stuff. They sent out Stanley to find Livingston. Stanley, who's a flagrant racist himself. Um, and when he did, the resultant sensationalized story. And all all this. Stanley and Livingston, I presume. Never said that. And you know, basically, it was like, hi, I was sent to find you. Livingston's like, I've been right here. But... They made a big to-do about it. And suddenly Livingston and Stanley and African missions became all the rage in all the English-speaking countries because there are all these cool stories about it now. On the plus side, suddenly instead of seeing Africa as this dark continent, all of a sudden everybody sees it as this place that needs Jesus. Not that scary place with all the jungles, but they need Jesus, which is cool because suddenly people are caring about what's going on in Africa. People are wanting to send missionaries. But it's also not so cool because, like I say in this graphic, all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's a place of AIDS and sorrow and child soldiers and hunger and genocide and poverty. But we can also give them Jesus. You know, it's also a place of children playing with toys and you know, parents walking hand in hand with their kids and smiley people. I mean, they say, they're human beings. There's a danger of still seeing it as the dark continent, even if you're doing it out of the goodness of your heart. Some of the oldest Christian churches. They do. They do. It is also. It is also an unusually, compared to say America or Europe, it is also an unusually horrific place with unusually high levels of horror going on in various places. So balance, because I mean, something to go. We don't. We don't have roving bands of warlords chopping off the hands of whole villages here in Illinois. A little different, you know. Um, And yet. There's a lot of good stuff going on. Like you said, some of the oldest, like the Ethiopian churches, you go, um, these were founded during the ages of the apostles, and they're still around. So, I mean, it's it's complicated. But people don't mind like complicated. You know, it's like, no, it's a place of nobility. No, it's a place of horror. No, it's like, well, like any place, it's all that. 1871. Also the time of the Great Chicago Fire. See, this is part of my the conflagration center. But, so, I mean, all sorts of different things going on. soccer team. Yes. Any, okay, how many people understood that the Chicago Fire was named after the Chicago Fire? i never got that till this moment. Yeah. <laughs> I never, I never, guys, wow. I didn't know Chicago had a soccer team. Yeah. Oh, no. no. Oh. Mickey's going to hurt you after class. I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about it. Okay, starting on Sunday evening, fire burned through Tuesday evening. So... Uh, Yeah, 48 straight hours, killing 300 people, displacing thousands, destroying four square miles of the city's downtown area. All the really best parts. Pardon me? Okay, it was was gotten rid of because it finally started raining, but let's get this out of the way. It was not because of the cow. (laughs) It was not because of the cow. It, shows it. it clearly shows the cow kicking over. It's not because of the cow. Pardon? Um, oh yeah. All oh I know so is that the song goes is all sorts of different things. It's not because of the cow. Again, again, it probably would. It would still be burning now if it hadn't. St- there had been a horrible drought all week long, and 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 then it finally broke, and there was rain on Tuesday evening, and that finally helped put out the fire. But it was the cow. That story was made up by a Chicago Tribune writer who even said he made it up because he hates the Irish. So it's Mrs. O'Leary's story. There was a news story made up by a reporter? Go figure. What? Okay, you have to understand. In the newspaper? You have to understand. Even in this time of history, there were people who were very dismissive, very um, disrespectful toward African Americans, right? Even in the North. Nobody. In the United States, was hated more than the Irish at this time in history. Now, very soon after this, especially on the West Coast, you can add the Chinese. Um, so, uh, like, who uh, was it, Billy the Kid? I don't remember how many he said, you know, how many people he had killed. He was famous for saying, I killed such and such people, not including Chinamen and Irish. Because, you know, they're not people. Um, so, uh, it's, the the Irish were. Roundly hated throughout, uh, throughout the, uh, especially the North. Um, they were considered because so many of them came over after the potato famine and took everybody's jobs. So think about the way that the most racist people you can picture think of uh, like Mexican migrant workers. That's the way most people in America felt toward the Irish back then. So they it, roundly hated, and so yes, anyone even said, "Oh no, I just hate the Irish. We needed a scapegoat." We made this up. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like an Irish name to me. It does, doesn't it? But it's a great story. People tend to like great stories more than they like the truth. Remember what we talked about in, in, in the service yesterday or last week? It's not about how things how true things are, but how real they ring. Yeah. How soon afterward did we say that we made it up? Um. Like. That week? No, I, I, no, but it was it wasn't immediately, but it was in the within the next couple of years. So it might have even been within the, the year. But by the time, by the time it had become a thing, he was like, uh, no, was like, no, 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 no. In fact, if you read the article, it, it it reads sensationalistically like he's kind of making it up anyway. But so he's like, guys, no. But no, there actually was a Captain O'Leary, and so everybody, and so everybody was, who had a cow and had a barn and lost everything in the fire, everybody's like. It was you. She, what? I didn't do anything. And they're like, clearly it was you. You're an O'Leary. You own a cow. You killed Chicago. Oh, did you anything happen to her because of that? God, I, mean, nothing. I mean, she didn't get killed or anything, but I'm sure she got hate. notes. Even in 1938, they're still making movies blaming the poor cow. Aww. It's clearly about the cow. Even in 1998, they're still making TV shows blaming the poor cow. There's an episode where it goes back in time and it's that... That cow! It's like, stop it! It wasn't the cow! Oh, well. Wow. Nobody knows exactly what started the fire. There's some really interesting theories as to what started the fire. There's a big meteor shower that night. Is it that there have been this... You know, is it that the meteor set off? I don't know. I don't know. But we do know that there have been fires throughout the Midwest all week. And there have been fires in Chicago all week because of that horrible drought. Which is part of why the... They had a grand total of, I think, 17 fire trucks the entire city of Chicago, and bear in mind these are like pump trucks. So it's like, they were exhausted. By the time Sunday evening will run, these guys were already exhausted putting out fires. And so that probably had something to do with it. But we also know why it went on as long as it did, and was as bad as it was. You can probably figure this out with me. Remember when we talked about how the streets in Chicago were filled with mud and raw sewage? And, and gooey, yeah, nasty stuff. And remember the, 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 the fun little comic strip I showed you from the Chicago magazine about the old joke that was common at the time. You can look at the guy up to his up, up to his shoulders and the other guy says, do you need help? Sir? He says, oh, no, thank you. I have a good horse under me. This is how bad the Chicago streets were. It's just so much deep sewage and mud. So what did they do? Remember, they raised up whole blocks so they could put in a modern sewer system. And they also... Replace those streets with the newest and best covering for horses and for pedestrians, called Nicholson Pavement. It was wooden blocks, soaked in tar, and then uh, laid like bricks, covered with pitch and gravel. This is great for horses. This is great for wagons. It's really comfy for, for pedestrians. It is, kind of. Isn't that your entire street is wood soaked with pitch and tar and stuff. Add that to the fact that they built their buildings using balloon framing. So they're all made out of wood, and long studs that go from the bottom of the, of the building all the way to the top, um, so, and, and, and then you would just uh, nail the different floors to that long stud. That way you have all these channels of air, wooden channels of air from floor to floor so that you keep the airflow moving, right? Who needs air vents? It makes total sense in a hot place like Chicago. I mean, in a colder time, if you've got other buildings to, to to block you, but but in warmer summers, yeah, this is great. Who needs air vents? The entire building is a wooden air vent. You can probably see why the whole town is a huge fire hazard. Yeah, the That's city's right. the fire stops in the building construction they just and they're required to do that. No, they are now. Yeah, but back then it's just like, oh no, this the buildings go up like you'd soak them in kerosene. The streets, you all but soak them in kerosene. You know, so it is Everything just, it was huge, huge fire trap. So, the city's brand new water tower made of stone instead of wood just built it like a year or two before. That was one of the few structures to survive the fire. Pardon me? Yeah, it's still there. You know, like you want to go to one of the most famous places in Chicago, go to water, water tower place. They love their water tower. In part because they're like, look, it's not destroyed. <laughs> it's still there. People go, yeah, it's a water tower. A, it's beautiful. If you've ever seen it, it's really a neat looking place. But B, you go, yeah, it survived the fire. It's straight downtown. So the city decided to completely rebuild itself. And being Chicago, just like they did with the pavement, just like they did with the sewer system, they're like, we're going to be on the cutting edge all sorts of urban construction Chicago is twice over already, the place and everybody around the world is going to Chicago because they're like nobody has done any of the stuff that you've done, you are setting the bar for construction in an urban environment so they're like okay we're going to keep doing that, if our balloon construction the way we've been doing it is dangerous how can we make buildings what's a new way of making buildings that's totally different from the way anybody else has ever made them before there you go we're going to make steel. We're going to make metal frames instead of wooden ones. And so, the Chicago was the first city to build tall buildings with metal frames, beginning in 1884 with the 10-story Home Insurance Building. Yes. Did they, did they know um, at that point that they were going to be the world's mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know when that was decided. I was just wondering if, like, if they were like, "Oh, we're going to be." and all this stuff like if that was in part because they were getting ready for that or the they wanted to host the fair because they'd already put these resources into it. Definitely that. But yeah. I don't know it might be the other one too. I, I it's probably a little early for them to it's not like the Olympics where you gotta do it ninety years out. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Arguably so because it was such a world showcase. People were already coming to Chicago to looking. Uh, 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 I think there's a Milwaukee architect said these are so tall that they were stratosphere scrapers that very quickly became streamlined to skyscrapers. Because stratosphere scrapers is kind of hard to say three times fast. But skyscrapers. So Chicago had the first skyscrapers. Now, you might say, this is interesting, what does that have to do with church history? Created something of a theological problem because it marked a huge shift in thinking. What is the huge shift? Okay, that's a good point. Tower of Babel, Tower of Babel issue. <laughs> They're pointing out to the t- what else? But the church has no longer been the tallest. The there you go. For the past seven centuries, the tallest buildings in the world had always been church buildings. Always a church building. And now the tallest buildings in the world are. Businesses. <laughs> <Pardon me>? <laughs> <laughs> are business double <laughs> <laughs> Hmm, exactly. we're all going to talk to Gary about that after. No. <laughs> in fact, it had been a law throughout Europe and even in parts of America that uh, no building in town could be built taller than a church building. It had to be the tallest building in town, because otherwise you're dissing God. Which is why a lot of times you'll see so many steeples being built on churches. I mean, A, we, we, we because we're us, we just go, yeah, that's what you put on a church. Yeah, but why? Because that's a churchy thing. But why? Why build steeples? I don't know, that's a steeple thing. There really is reasons it's a for the place stuff. to put the bell. Sometimes it's a place to put the bell. But basically why do you have this large spire? Why do you just it? so that it's always the tallest thing. And and so even if you have a one story church, you might have a three story steeple sitting on top of it, so that three story, you know. Mansion that the Bürgermeister has, it's like it's still not the tallest place in town because the church is still taller. Oh yeah! Actually, that was a big debate when the World Trade Center came out. And they're like, "Well, do you count the Steeple? Do you not count the Steeple?" The 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 Seers Town my So um, when you get skyscrapers like the Singer Building in New York uh, in, in 1901 1904 is around in there. Um, Suddenly, so businesses and government buildings are the tallest structures in the world. So, you're a church leader. You complain that this is just a modern Tower of Babel. So, Mark and Megan, you guys rock. You know. We're emphasizing our own capabilities instead of prioritizing the things of God. This is bad, right? And then, of course, a lot of people sit there and go, no, no not making a statement. There's no shift in cultural priorities. You church guys are just being overly sensitive. Okay, so I'm going to ask you guys, what do you think? Does it mark a a huge cultural shift that people are moving away from seeing the church as a priority by having skyscrapers? Or is that maybe reading into things a little bit much? I think it has to have an effect, because like you said, we went downtown Chicago Last month, and I couldn't link all the insurance companies. I was oh. Like, oh, look, they're seeing it. these places. And not once did I think, oh, there's a church or mm-hmm. there's God. guy. Now, if there are other beautiful buildings nestled in under the tall ones, what are you guys saying? Well, I, I was going to say it's, it's subtle. I think it's one, maybe one of those things that would creep up on you. But it does seem to indicate priorities. Like this is where we're putting all of our effort. Mm-hmm. And it may not indicate a conscious shift. Right. ha, ha! We will be taller than the church, but especially, like I said, if, if there are even laws against this in some places, like in rural places and things like that. People have to be aware that they're doing something funky by doing a taller for You But you make the same argument that throughout time, you're not prioritizing yeah. God as that highest. And it's interesting. Um, I was reading an architectural journal um, that argued part of this part of the problem was the churches themselves, because churches could have built steel frame buildings and made them super tall too. And they didn't. Because they're like, But we make them out of stone. We make them beautiful. This this is the way we've always done it. You know, yeah, but culture has shifted. Yeah, well they don't get to. They just say, like, they shouldn't be taller than us. They shouldn't change. Like, well, you you could change. You, you could do what the culture does. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't build a church with a steel frame. You, you could do that, or you could not have such a cow about the fact that they change. Do changed. Do you change your structure to meet culture, or do you expect culture to keep their structure the same to match you? What were you going to say? I don't know. They put towers on buildings that have no reason for having a tower. I worked at one Madison Avenue, Metropolitan Life Insurance, in high school and college, and I worked at it for. a I actually became president of Metro, and uh, I was up in the tower. And it didn't. So. so it it is a legitimate question where you say, how much of this is sacrosanct because it's what we've always done, and maybe we should shift. How much of it you go, no, no, it's fine that we do it this way, but we kind of expect the culture to shift. How much of this is what? What are you gonna say? Well. The geography doesn't work, though. You can't put a congregation... Like, the congregation needs to be on the same plane in order for you all to be together. Arguably so. If you're like... If, like, a fifth of you is... Or a tenth or a hundredth of you is on one floor and the next hundredth of you is on the next floor, how are you going to have communion? How are you going to worship together? You can't. Good argument. Yes, exactly. But, But then can you really complain that other people are now taller than you because... You need to be wide, and they feel like they need to be tall because they need to have a small footprint but still have lots of. Yeah. Okay. Really. Okay. Go ahead. It would be kind of ridiculous for a church to try to build a taller building. Someone else to build another taller building. Then try to build another taller building, and it would be okay. kind of. It's exactly it's the, ridiculous. It's exactly the sort of printsmanship that businesses do all the time. You know, it's, ah, Kuala Lumpur right now the tallest building? No, no. We're going to do this in Dubai. You know? As a church, do we want to be a part of that ridiculous rat race? Exactly. Instead, we want everybody else to stop racing like a rat so that we can just remain the tallest. I mean, seriously, it is still the same rat race, we're, but instead of us running, we're demanding everybody else stop. That would so, be, and so and what I'm saying is it's complicated, because you'd be tempted to say, well, it's wrong for these theologians to say it this way. They're demanding all the other rats stop. Except they're right that it does indicate a cultural priority shift. It's complicated. Yeah, okay, then I want to move on from Skype here. Yes. Yep. Yes. Like, there were some, but a lot of them burned down too. Go ahead. Well, and if there's that shift of focus so much on the buildings around them, it mm-hmm. takes away from the the focus that we should have is not the changing of the buildings that we have, but the changing of the hearts of people. See, now you're speaking to like what what Cliff and I grew up in the idea of like. Well, this isn't a church. This is just a building where the church meets. If this burned down tomorrow, I would feel really bad for a lot of different reasons. But it doesn't affect the church. Just just the church building. And, and, But there's a number of people that consider this a church. And this focuses on, but the church has to be the tallest thing, you go, really? Are you stacking your people on top of each other's shoulders? The building needs to be the tallest thing? Is that what you're saying? You're, you are in danger, again. I'm not saying this is horrible. I get what they're trying to say, and I do think there's a, a an important and dangerous cultural shift. But there's a danger in this sort of thing of thinking it's the building that's the important thing. It's almost building all building all a tree. Well all number of hours resources putting a lot towards that Exactly. All right. 1872. Victoria Woodhull runs for president. Yay. Just heard about her. Did you? How many people have heard of Victoria Woodhull? Okay. Alright. Yes. Yeah, this is before Hillary Clinton's, Clinton's grandmother was even born. Alright. So so people are like, oh, who's the first woman to run for president? Hillary? No. Geraldine Farrow. Geraldine Farrow. No. Victoria Woodhull. Born in Ohio, she's the child of an illiterate mother and a con father who abused her sexually and physically. Not a nice environment to grow up in. So, a 29-year-old uh, uh, doctor, although he didn't necessarily have a license, but he didn't have to necessarily back then. 29-year-old doctor named Canning Woodhull came to live with their family so he could treat her various illnesses when she was young. And so, 15-year-old Victoria marries 29-year-old Canning. Because you gotta get out of that abusive relationship, right? Abuse That's right. But she's kinda of renowned for being cute, so it's one of those things where there are times I worked for her, times that worked against her. Three days after her wedding, she found the chronically alcoholic Kenning in a local brothel. Okay, how many people remember what we talked about last week with uh, Carrie Nation? Do you see a common theme? There's a common theme of guys being basically louses and and Chronic alcoholics. There's a massive alcoholism problem happening again in our country. So this is the sort of thing that's making Carrie Nation go, well, we ought to do something about it last week, right? Six weeks after she got married, she intercepted a note to her husband from his mistress saying, did you marry that child because she, too, was pregnant? Yeah. Yeah, the more you think about that, the luckier it gets. Not a great relationship. In addition, Canning used to beat her so regularly, even while she was pregnant, that their first child, Brian, was born with brain damage. Fun. So, nonetheless, she supported her family by becoming a prostitute because her husband, or a seamstress, <laughs> reports vary, and I realize that those are different. <laughs> but actually, odds are, from everything we get, yeah, she was probably a prostitute. Yeah, it's. There have been a number of euphemisms in history to describe um, prostitution when prostitution isn't exactly legal in a particular area. So like uh, cigarette girls, you know, it's like they sell cigarettes, and they'll bring them to your home to sell you a cigarette. It's like there's. So it's hard because there really were to of seamstresses, and then there were seamstresses. You know, so it's it's hard. It's hard to know. Um, I'm an, I'm a dancer. Oh, that's great. Good you know, with the ballet. I'm an exotic dancer. Oh, okay. you know, it's it's uh, much of a <laughs> well, but you, yeah. So anyway, eventually she left Canning, moved to Chicago, and became a magnetic healer because there was a big thing back then that you can use magnets to heal people. They didn't exactly know why, but later on people have written whole articles about well, there's you know, trace magnet magnetic particles in your blood, and this reorients them. Yeah, my grandma was, totally was like really into that. Yeah. So, so i will refrain from comment but passing through st louis she began this torrid affair with married city administrator james harvey blood 1866 they divorced their respective spouses and remarried one another so fine. but she retained her married because this is nobody did it this way but she did it this way she retained her original married name of victoria woodhull she didn't want to have her name growing up she didn't like that family and she didn't take Blood's name because she already had a name and she wasn't going to take some man's name because she got burned doing that before. She increasingly becomes a social activist. That she and Blood found a newspaper to bring social causes up to the forefront, including uh, feminist ideas like free love. What's free love? Anybody ever heard the expression free love? What's, what's free love? Well, t- and that is an application of it, and that's what you get in the 60s. But back in the in the 1960s, back in the 1870s, free love is more about sexual independence. Uh, it's not so much, I mean, yes, an application of it is you can have sex with whoever you want. Well, Victoria Woodhull herself summarized by saying, um, I have an inalienable, constitutional and natural right to love whom I may, to love as long or as short a period as I can, to change that love every day if I please, and with that right, neither you nor any law can frame, any law you can frame, have any uh, right to interfere. So it's more than just I want to have sex with a lot of people, it's I want to get married, or I don't want to get married, or I want to be married for a minute and a half, and I don't want to be married tomorrow. I want to decide when I get to have sex, or when I don't have sex. I get to decide that. It's my body, you don't get to tell me what to do with it. Which, if you think about it, is why she's still seen as a sexual revolutionary today, and a symbol not only for modern feminism, but for gay rights, for transgender rights, For all those people who say you should be able to love whomever you want to love, it's okay. Nobody actually, by the way, believes you can love whomever you want to love, and it's okay. There's very few people in the world that actually believe it's okay, and the government should not tell you anything about who to love. Because if I start listing people that you would, or things that you should have the right to maybe love, somewhere along the line, everybody goes, ew, not that. So it's not a matter of, so everybody wants to sit there and say, oh, You should be able to love whoever you want. Yeah, nobody actually believes that. You just move the bar to a different place between who you should be allowed to love and who the government shouldn't tell you you're allowed to love. But, um, and I should say, there's a bit of a love-hate thing going with her and modern activists. Stuff that they'd rather forget that she said. For instance, she was a staunch anti-abortion activist. Because she said the first time that any woman ever gets abused by a man is in an abortion. Because those women in the, right, in the womb are getting aborted, and they have no say in it at all. So if I really want to say women should not be abused by men, that's got to start when they're in the womb, for crying out loud. Huge anti-abortion activists, Even the most ardent people who love Victoria Woodhull nowadays tend to not comment on this, because this is a big deal to her. Um, She was also not technically a liberal, the way most people think liberal. She was more like what you would call a libertarian. She's like, just back off. I want less government. I want less government involvement. I want you to just not say or do anything, which is the exact opposite of of a political liberal today. But um, you can picture her as a really attractive, anti-abortionist, anti-government feminist activist. Which means that today, she would totally have her own blog. She would be crazy famous today. People are like, she's just rocking the boat. You know, it's like, yeah, that's Victoria Woodhull. So they talked about marriage reform, because she's like, ah, oh, marriage is just a patriarchal institution designed to keep women down. She, she argued for short skirts. And by that, I don't mean mini skirts. was a movement for shorter skirts so that women could walk around and be as free as men are. Why do women have to wear such constraining garments and things? So women need to be able to dress comfortably. But I like this. Women should be able to wear pants. It's like No, they should be able to wear shorter skirts. So it's, again, everything's along and continuum. Um, she suggested, you know, she wrote about spiritualism, because she was really big into spiritualism. She wrote that we should legalize and regulate prostitution because she'd had first-hand experience. Her sister was a prostitute. Um, just, this is not... Prostitution isn't the problem, it's the lack of regulation of the pimps that's the problem. She wrote about Marxism because in fact, she was even the first, her printing presses were the first to print the Communist Manifesto in English. That was Victoria Woodhull because, what did Marx write about? What was Marx and Engels, what was their basic argument? There are oppressed peoples, right? The power elite oppress the masses. There are whole chunks, the proletariat, what have you, uh, that are uh, oppressed and are being oppressed. And she said, "Right." And the most oppressed class in America is women. So I can apply Marxism to women and the uh, feminism. It's not Marxism. It's 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 an you know, interesting idea to. most feminist thought today, technically, is built on a Marxist structure that excuse me, words. anyway um, and she also talked about women's suffrage, which is what the right to vote because right women weren't allowed to vote. In fact she believed so strongly in that she actually ran for president against Grant in 1872. Even though women couldn't vote, she had no real platform other than she wanted to change the US Constitution with a declaration of interdependence and overturn the government. She's like, we're going to do a new constitution. and Then within a year, the whole government is being changed. Mm-hmm. Within a year of me being president, we're overthrowing the whole thing. Um, and she wasn't even 35 years old. Um, so, protest candidate. Yeah, <laughs> all things being equal, probably wasn't going to happen. Is what I'm getting at. Um, she also chose as her vice presidential running mate Frederick Douglass. Wow. She's like totally rocking the boat
1: but it also made for
0: all sorts of different news articles you go well she got pressed but that didn't win over a lot of people including frederick Douglass, who went what <laughs> <laughs> i don't even know her i'm not very polite very quietly just like i'm, not, I'm actually over here <laughs> this deep melodious resonant baritone <laughs> no clue you just I'm running for president, and Rush Limbaugh is my, is my vice president's <laughs> candidate. Rush goes, who are you? Uh, what? <laughs> anyway. Oh. So, she won so few votes, they weren't even officially counted. Um, we know she won a couple of votes. There was one guy in particular who said, I didn't vote for her, I voted against Grant. So, it's like... <laughs> Not very many votes, and yet, she officially ran. She was officially on the ticket. The historical the process was made. For primary, not for president, or was it? Primary? It was, it, she was her own party. So that was, it was pretty easy when, when you get your own party and you're the only one running, you're, if you don't win that primary, you've done something wrong. <laughs> I think it was called the Equality Party. 1876, she also crossed literary swords with another woman over the issue of marriage in, uh, in, a, in a newspaper in Massachusetts. So, Woodhull argued that marriage was an outdated patriarchal institution designed to denigrate and subjugate women. Right? Her opponent, anybody know who that is? Her opponent, Mary Baker Eddy, argued that marriage was a sacred and crucially important institution that should be held in the highest esteem. This is Absolutely important. Um, for those of you who don't know, she had just published her book, Science and Health, with Key to the Scriptures the year before, and it was, she was very quickly becoming kind of the go-to writer to have at your parties and things in the East, even though her particular cult, the Christian Scientists, wouldn't officially be founded until 1879. So, here's the question. Who do you think you would have found yourself supporting? The clearly messed up sexually liberal Christian who wants to destroy traditional marriage or the prudish conservative cult leader who wants to defend it. These are the two people in Massachusetts of the day who are addressing this issue. You are in Massachusetts. Whom do you support? Water cooler. People ask you, who are you for? Are you for what or are you for Mary Baker Eddy? <laughs> of course you would say that being a man <laughs> part, of, part of the privilege delete yes. let's get a woman's opinion on this Go ahead. I would say it would depend on the particular argument because no one person is going to be alright about everything they're all wrong about everything but, but it, it, and, that's a, and that, is, that is a healthy way of, of answering it if, if somebody says, well, who do you agree with on marriage here? you probably say, on marriage, I would agree with Mary Baker Eddy. She's got good opinions. But you'd have to find yourself, a, but, you know, she's totally wrong on everything else. But she happens to be right on this? Please don't be on my side. Um, and you'd be tempted to, be, to say, that it does need to be some reform on the rights of women. Oh, yeah! And all of those things, they're both necessary. Well, and if it's me, being me, I would probably say, well, it's complex. I refuse to answer a complex question with a simple answer. Um, I, there were things about Mary Baker Eddy's take on marriage that I think are overly traditionalist. You know, I no, I, I think Woodhull's got a, a good argument about that, you know, women kind of have their right to say no. You know, they've got a headache, however you want to say that. Even that, I've got a headache, is itself a euphemism for saying no, because it's not like a woman can just say no. It's like... You, you kind of get to decide that sort of thing, I would think. Um, having said that, I disagree with Hope Woodhull on 99% of the stuff, 97% of the stuff he says. Well, this still exists. Oh, yeah. It in the well, oh, you mean the Christian scientists? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But we will discuss that next week when, when the cult begins. Next week, we'll talk about Christian science and what they believe. But how do Christians decide their political bedfellows today? Do we do we decide to, to what? Great do they do they really? Do Christians tend to decide their socio-political battles with great deliberation? No, they they do it with what their biggest issue in their own life is in kind of what they should. You're right. They should do it with deliberation, but it, but usually Christians find what is the drum I tend to beat the loudest, it's okay. Is it? it? I don't know. I haven't heard the expression. But that makes total sense. Where you pick like, one thing from your candidate or whatever the issue is. That... Yep. I, you pick whatever. I like that. Identity. Can, uh, politics. But you find whatever it is that you identify with the most, find a candidate that identifies that in the same way that you do and say, that's my pony. And so you go, well, I, I really think, I am a strong proponent of the everybody gets chocolate every day platform. And Floyd has the platform of Everybody Gets Chocolate Every Day. In fact, he has a really good place, plan in place for how everybody should be able to get chocolate every day. I mean, even the poorest people in America should be able to get chocolate every day. Um, Now, he's funding that by killing all the old people and taking all their money. But I'm a big fan of that Everybody Gets Chocolate Every Day thing. And so I think Jesus made chocolate, and so Jesus wants us to have chocolate every day. No, not everything that Floyd is suggesting is necessarily biblical, but no, 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 nobody's perfect. You just go, you're murdering people so you get chocolate! Is that really? Uh, I mean, Christ... Again, a little complicated, and most of us tend not to want to be complicated. Uh. It's interesting, though, that you don't hear that much about this it. pictorial being part of the start of the women's feminist thing because you always hear... Betty yeah, I, I, yeah, you get Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, uh, 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 uh Susan B. Anthony. You go, maybe because Victoria's a bit of a flake, is part of it. I mean, she's, for all those people who want to legitimize a, a legitimate social movement of saying, you know, women probably should have equal rights, um, the idea of going, yeah, the ex hooker who said she wanted to marry as many people as she wanted to and do whatever she felt like doing and said Karl Marx was great. Maybe she's not the poster child of what we're trying to show America when we're saying, oh, we're good Americans. We're not saying overthrow the system. We're just saying women should have rights, too. That's what we're saying. Gloria Steinem goes, oh, Victoria Whittle? I like her. I'm all for Victoria Whittle. We should study Victoria Whittle. And there are people in the feminist movement going, yeah, Gloria. And other people going, well, maybe not the best patron saint. Maybe. Susan B. Anthony. She was good. Let's do Susan B. Anthony. Let's put her on the money. And in 1876, Woodhull divorces blood. Well, she just got into this huge literary debate about why marriage is a bad thing, right? So she divorces blood. Long story short, she moves to England because the Vanderbilt paid her to move to England. Um, in part because her sister was having an affair with the Vanderbilt and she might have been having an affair with the Vanderbilt and they decided it was all messy, so after he died, his family paid her off to complicate it. So she left and she went and married a uh, wealthy London banker Um, John Martin, and started a whole new magazine, and never did return to the States. So, colorful. So she's not even American. Dual citizenship. (laughs) Dual (laughs) citizenship. 1872. P.P. Waldenstrom preaches on the atonement. Anybody ever hear of P.P. Waldenstrom? Okay. P.P. Paul Petter. Uh, was born in northern Sweden, ordained as a priest in the Swedish Lutheran State Church at the age of 26. He became involved with the evangelical movement within the state church, because the state church says, you're born in Sweden, that means you're part of the state church of Sweden, which means you're a Christian. Right? And and so he says, you know, maybe that's not the right way of doing it. When I look at scripture, it's not what I see in scripture. I'm born in Illinois, therefore I'm part of the state church of Illinois, therefore I must be a Christian going to heaven, because... I was born in Illinois. That doesn't make sense. Maybe that doesn't automatically make someone a member of the state church. Maybe it shouldn't. Perhaps even within churches in Sweden, we should be preaching the gospel. I know. And he got in trouble for that. But, became famous in his sermons in his classrooms for asking the pointed question, where is it written? Show me where it's written. If you don't see it in scripture, you probably should be making a dogmatic case for something. Where is it written? I have a great respect for that. So, by 1872, his studies on the atonement. What is the atonement? What does atonement mean? Jesus the the sin. That, that, is, that is our interpretation of the atonement, but the atonement itself, what is it? I'm not disagreeing with you, but what? Uh, Jesus, you know, right with God. There you go. It's right with God. It comes from it's literally saying at one That's where the English word atonement comes from. It's just, it's at one altogether. It's how we need to be brought back into a relationship with God. So what exactly does that mean? How does that work? He came up with some radical new theories. To Waldenstrom, it makes no sense to suggest that Christ's work on the cross was some sort of appeasement of God's wrath. He didn't pay for sins. You don't do it like that. Because first off, that would suggest that somehow he changed God. If God was wrathful and then not wrathful, he was angry and then not angry, he was angry and then he was happy, that would suggest God is changing and God is unchanging, right? Would you agree? God cannot be happy at one point and not happy at another point. Do you agree? The scripture says it's changes. Okay, let me say it this way How are you feeling? I kick you. I How are you feeling? Ow. No. <laughs> I changed him. He's a different person now. Before he was fine, and now he's upset. He changed as a human being, right? He's not a different person. No, he just. His thoughts are based on the context. He didn't change. By the way, thank you for letting me kick you. He didn't change. And so there's. I do throw water on people too. <laughs> That God has wrath at one point and not wrath at another point doesn't necessarily suggest God changed. It suggests that he was pleased by what people were doing and then later when they kicked poor Brian in the shoe, God was unpleased with what they did. God didn't change, but he said, no, no, that would require that God somehow changed at that moment. And God is unchanging, therefore that can't be true. Plus, God has no wrath toward humanity. Show me where that's written. Is there any place in scripture where it ever says that God has wrath? <laughs> if you want to do a Bible drill, somebody read Ephesians 5-6, Romans 1-18, Colossians 3-4-6, 1 Thessalonians 2-14-16, John three thirty six, Romans 5-9, all of which say God has wrath. And that Jesus paid for that and God's wrath passes over us because of what Jesus did on the cross. The Old Testament, too, the things that they had to do to take care of that wrath. I mean, the uh, for atonement yep. before Jesus. Yep. Yeah. Now, there are some people that just disregard that, and there are some people who say, yep, yeah, that was Old Testament. It has nothing to do with us as Christians, which is a darn shame. So, Waldenstrom himself said, is it then anywhere written in the Word of God that God's wrath has, was to be appeased through Christ's death? Well, it has been appeased through Christ's death. If it's written in the Word of God, then it must be held as true. If not, it must be given up. The question is therefore, is it written? To this, it must be replied, no. It is nowhere thus written in the whole Bible. There is no such passage. Okay, that is just. Is it isn't written? in Yeah. Might might it be a translation issue? No. Not. <laughs> or the lack of reading issue? Yeah. Does he have a Bible? <laughs> yes, he has a Bible. Yes, his translation would still have talked about God's wrath passing over us and things. Could be that he had no Bible? No, he had a Bible. Could be that there was a translation issue. It wasn't a translation issue. There's also the idea of, you've heard me talk about, eisegesis. Once you've decided something, to the hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Once you've decided that the Bible never says this, go look at those passages. Of course they don't say that. What it really means is, clearly what this really means is that homosexuality is a good thing. I'm not sure that that's clearly what Paul was getting at in Romans. Um, Christ died on the cross not to pay for our sins or to redeem humanity or anything so unbiblical that is completely unbiblical according to Wallenstrom. Um, none of those things. It's vulgar and unbiblical to think that Jesus would pay for or redeem us, which means to buy back, you know, with his death. Somebody read Galatians three thirteen through fourteen if you'd like to. What is what is Galatians three, since you've got your Bible, what does Galatians three thirteen through fourteen say? You don't mind? Oh, mine's in Spanish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, speed drill. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. by becoming the curse for him, for us, for it's written verses that we have made on the tree. So, so he redeemed us by dying. Wallenstrom just said, if that's ever in the Bible, then that must be true. But since that's never in the Bible, it can't be true. Therefore, um, he tried he to radically connect himself with humanity, and to radically reconnect all of us to God. In modern terms, he gave us a blood transfusion of his holiness. He was holy, and by bleeding out, he gave us his holiness. He didn't pay for anything. He didn't make sin go away. He made us not sinful people. So he didn't have a concordance. I can see that there's a word pay in. I okay, I went round and round I went round and round about this when I was getting my licensure where they said there's no place in scripture where it talks about paying for sin. I listed verse after verse of redeeming, paying, pay for, redeeming this, bought us back. And they're like, see, you don't understand. I'm pretty sure I do. That's what this word means. Actually these weren't really new or um, radical ideas, even though he said that they're new and radical, when you think about it, they really weren't. Um, Do you remember we talked about Peter Abelard, who taught the same sort of things 760 years earlier? Do you remember Abelard uh, said Jesus didn't die on the cross to take our punishment, because that would make God wrathful, and God isn't wrathful? Uh, Instead, Jesus died to infuse our lives with his holy blood and his righteousness. That was 760 years before this. Um, Christ's death on the cross was not a payment to either God or Satan, but rather a call for holy living, the perfect example of the ultimate act of obedience to God. Thus, Abelard's view is often called the moral influence theory because it's talking about how Jesus' actions influence our core morality, which to me, maybe I'm, bra- I'm not very right, sounds a lot like what Waldstrom invented in 1872. Yeah. Now, yeah. um, I'll do this real quick. A uh, quick recap of the basic views of the atonement, just, just so you remember, especially since I specifically talked about uh, views earlier. There's the ransom theory that says Jesus died as a ransom to Satan. This is what you get in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, right? Jesus died to pay the devil because the devil owned us because of original sin. We belong to Satan. Um, thus... It was all a trick by God since Satan didn't realize that Christ's sacrifice would allow him to break the power of sin and death. Satan's like, ha ha ha, I just killed the son of God. And Jesus said, ha ha ha, ha, you just let me beat you. Again, read the line in The Witch in the Wardrobe, you'll understand the ransom theory. There's a tweak on this called the Christus Victor theory. It emphasizes that Jesus' ransom defeated the power of Satan. He was the victor. It's all a big battle sort of thing. He won by dying. Trumpets blare. Another theory is the penal or substitutionary theory of the atonement. This is what you guys were talking about. Jesus died in our place to take the penalty that we owed for our sins onto himself. He became the sacrificial lamb, like in the Old Testament, etc. This theory was promoted really early on, and then Augustine came up with the ransom theory, and nobody wanted to believe this one anymore, and then they came back to this one later in the Protestant theory post reformation stuff. I shouldn't say Augustine came up with Ransom. early on? In the early right. centuries of the church. Okay. The early patriarchal, the early patriarchs of the church, like with the, you know, Irenaeus, those kinds of guys, Polycarp. The moral influence theory then came along in the, in the Middle Ages where Jesus died as a martyr to show us the perfect example of living for and living out purity. So those are the three basic takes. We, uh, this is what Cliff and, and Mark were saying, we basically would be the substitutionary atonement kind of people saying, you know, he died for our sins. He paid for our sins. Um an Anglican theologian, modern Anglican theologian, John Stott, said, you know, maybe it's all these. and Maybe it's a bunch of things. Yet yeah, we start with uh, substitutionary atonement as our baseline. Yes, Jesus died in our place to take the penalties for our sins on onto himself. He says the Bible's really clear about that. And yet he did conquer Satan and sin at the cross. So there's an element of that Christus Victor thingy there. Even though he wasn't paying anything to Satan. And yet Jesus also did die as an example of how we should be living holy lives. We should be placing God first and foremost. So there is an element of moral influence. And we can have holiness because of what he did. I will say some people have rightly argued that Stott is trying to make everybody happy. Stott was a big fan of trying to make everybody happy. I oh, think yeah, he's right? It makes sense to me. Maybe he was trying to say, oh, can we all get along? But yeah, can't we all get along? Because there's really some truth to a lot of these. As long as you, in my mind, as long as you start with the fact that Jesus died for our sins. The rest of that, I, I don't mind tacking on. There. Well, by 1878, Waldstrom's views diverged enough from the state church that he left the church to be part of the Swedish Missions Association. You know, we're gonna we're gonna go share the gospel with people. We're gonna remind them it's not enough just to be born in Sweden. You need to uh, to find Christ. You need to be changed and become Christians, which eventually became known as the Swedish Covenant Church due to its members' use of covenanticals. Anybody want to guess what a covenantical is? It's a small group. We come together as a small group Bible study to meet in our homes to meet. We. We're secret because the state church doesn't like it, but we're not, like, in a basement. What? of parchment, strange, dangly things out (laughs) there. A (laughs) covenanticle. 1885, that church founded the Swedish Evangelical Mission Covenant of America in Chicago. Because that just trips off the tongue. Which eventually became known as the Evangelical Covenant Church which is our congregation that's right 1904 waldensrom becomes the president of the swedish covenant church and is fondly remembered as basically their their resident theologian which is why when i was getting licensed i had to tangle with pp Waldenstrom. in fact they even said one of the questions is interact with pp Waldenstrom's view of the atonement yeah you know, here's the, how do you, would you would you beat somebody with a stick no i would not beat somebody with a stick do you believe the bible yes Interact with Pee Pee Wallace from his view of the Atonement. I know. Where is it? Where is it? I am. Okay. Yes, that is what I said. So. And yet they still license me, so. Yeah. 1876. I think Sarah said they call this church. Cogs and Church? In Sweden. Interesting eighteen seventy six, the Great Sioux War. That's where we'll pick it up next week. Um, we're, we're with the the Plains Indians wars going on out there. So how would you summarize what we talked about today to people? Anything pop out at you or jump out at you or remind you? Liberalism is strong and young. Okay. People believe what they like Yeah. There's a lot of isegesis going on here. A lot of a lot of people feeling whether it's whether it's Bismarck going, you are, you hate the Germans. I just didn't want him to. You hate the Germans. We'll invade France and make you not hate the Germans. I hate the Germans. <laughs> You're lost, Livingston. Actually, I've been right here. Let's go find Livingston. I've been right here. You guys just didn't care for the last six years. Uh, it was the cow. It's not the cow. That darn cow. By the way, I made up the cow story. Let's make a movie about the cow. I made up the cow story... Here's an episode of TV about that darn cow. Yada, yada. A lot of eisegesis going on. A lot of eisegesis still going on, even by Christians. But the most dangerous part of eisegesis is to real. you be glorified, not just by the stuff we do, but why we do it. Are we genuinely seeking you first and foremost? Or are we starting with what we wanted to hear in the first place? Help us, Lord, to give you glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.